our sermon text for today is First Chronicles chapter 21 and the first verse of 22. So I encourage you to open your Bibles with me and track along. That's First Chronicles chapter 21 through chapter 22, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as there are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, uh, to Gad David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. Either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtake you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the thresh, threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor, and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, 
that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I have given oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan sixty shekels of gold by weight for the site, and David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of, the, of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, once again, we come and we want to hear from you. We want to hear from the living God who spoke 3,000 years ago to King David and he continues to speak through his son, Jesus Christ. So please, may we have ears that are able to hear what it is you want to speak to us. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin by asking a question. If you're a Christian in this room, why are you still a Christian? Not how did you become a Christian, what were the kind of mechanisms that God drew you or why you first found Christianity compelling, but why are you still a Christian today on June 13th, is it the 13th? I don't know, 2021. I think this is becoming and will continue to be a more pressing question for Christians in America. The reason being, 200 years ago, if you lived in America, there was really only one kind of plausible option, and that was to believe in God, specifically the Christian God. There were atheists, but there were not many of them, and it was difficult to not believe. The assumption that everything pressing you towards was to believe in this Christian God. Of course, we knew that there were other religions. We knew that there was Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, but those were kind of exotic, faraway religions that weren't like credible options or realistic options for us because we didn't see anyone practicing them. Today, it's very different though, right? Your, your neighbor might be an atheist. Your coworker might be Muslim. Drive by a, a kind of a Buddhist-inspired um, yoga what do you call a yoga shop, studio, on your way to church every Sunday? Like, all of a sudden, we have friends who believe and think things very differently. And there were belief systems that 200 years ago just wouldn't have been really a, a working option for us because they were so foreign, all of a sudden are. And so the question becomes, why am I a Christian instead of, and you fill in the blank, a Buddhist, 
Muslim, just a non-religious person. Why am I still a Christian? Well, there's a lot of reasons why I'm still a Christian. But I think, honestly, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say this. I think the main reason is because of the reality of sin and evil in the world. This is something that every worldview has to grapple with. How do you explain evil? What's your solution for evil? Most non-Christian solutions kind of move in two different directions. One is to kind of deny the pervasiveness of evil. It's not that big of a deal. Things are getting better. We just need to educate everyone. We're moving in a good trajectory. But to me, at the end of that, it seems very naive. After two world wars, as, as free nations seem to be tottering and dictatorships seem to be coming to power around the world, it's just, it seems naive to say things are just going to get better. I'm not sure they're going to get any worse, but things are pretty bad. The other kind of tendency that a non-Christian response to, to sin and evil will take is, is affirming evil is real, but it leads to a kind of a cynicism. It's like, yeah, and this is kind of the Lord of the Flies. If you remember that book from high school where a bunch of boys end up on an island by themselves and it just turns into this dog-eat-dog world and the whole message is, this is humanity apart from the kind of civilizing constraints of society. We're beasts. Those are kind of the two ways that, that non-Christian answers move. I think both of them at the end of the day are not that compelling. But Christianity is different because it gives the most compelling explanation and solution for sin. Christianity affirms that yes, there's sin and evil in the world and our hearts and in society doesn't minimize that. But it introduces the idea of mercy, which is why it's different from kind of a cynical solution. According to the Bible, we meet God only at the point of mercy, where human sin meets God's provision for sin. That's the only place we can meet God. And that is the Christian answer, solution to the problem of sin and evil in the world that we live in. In our text this morning, if you were able to follow that whole chapter, is all about sin and repentance and mercy. The mercy of God who meets us in our sin. And so that's going to be our, our structure of our time this morning. Three points, really simple. Sin, repentance, and mercy. So to give a quick recap, again, First and Second Chronicles written to the returning exiles of Israel who've spent about a century in forced exile. They're returning to their land. And, and a chronicler is writing to them and, 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 and teaching them, hey, this is how you should rebuild your nation. This is what's important for you to consider as you rebuild. Who God is, who you are, what God cares about. And if you remember from last week, uh, David wants to build a temple, and God reveals to him that a temple will be built, but it won't be David, and the temple is not the main thing. The main thing is the king who will one day come from David's line. And David will not be the one to build the temple. In fact, his role will be to prepare for the temple, and his son will be the one to build it. And then chapters. Uh, 18 through 20, which are between the text from last week and what we're looking at this week, are more of kind of David's military exploits. The whole point is to show that God is blessing David. David is not victorious because of his military strategies, victorious because God's hand is with him. And we see kind of an, a, 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 another glimpse of why it's important to have God's king on the throne. Because in chapter 18, verse 14, it's described that David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. 
When God's king is on the throne, there is justice and equity to all people. That's why we want God's king. So after that, we get finally to chapter 21. Go ahead and and look at verses 1 to 7. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the son of the numbering of the people to David. And in all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing. Right away we're told this is not a good desire for this census. It says, Satan incited David, right? This is not coming from the Lord. This is coming from the opponent of God, Satan himself. And in case that's not clear enough, there are people like Joab, not exactly a paragon of morality in the Bible. He was a pretty bad guy. Yet even he is morally repelled by this census. And then finally in verse 7, it just tells us God was displeased with this thing. And, And more literally, it says that this was evil in God's eyes. David's sinning. Now we don't, it's not totally clear why the census was so bad. Um, Censuses were typically administered, one, to raise taxes. You know how many people there are? How many taxes you can raise? Kind of like we administer a census today. Or to register for military service. And so Moses himself had administered a census to raise money for the tabernacle. So it's not that the census is inherently evil. Well, it's clear that this is a census for military service, right? Because when it numbers them, it's, it's men who drew the sword. That's what they're counting. So David is trying to count the military strength of Israel. So what's likely going on here, again, the chronicler has been at pains to describe how David had all these military exploits because God was with him. He introduces Saul, but he only mentions Saul's defeat to show that Saul failed and died because God had rejected him. But here comes David, and he's incredibly victorious, specifically because God is with him, because God's hand is with him. He's going before him in the battles. And so what seems to be happening is that um, David, whom God has given incredible victory, who has proven himself faithful to David, David is now beginning to look elsewhere for his trust. He's trying to gauge the strength of his people, not based on who God is and what God has told him he'll do for David, but on what he can count. There's a self-dependence that's growing in David's heart. That seems to be the likely explanation of why it's so sinful. Either way, it doesn't really matter why it's sinful. We're told that it is sinful. And so it gives us a look into sin. Now, a contextual consideration, just keep in mind, that will make more sense for what goes on in this story, is that in Israel, the king was a representative of the people in a way that does not make sense in our, in our society. We, right, we all have political representatives, but they don't literally represent me. And so when our political leader has a moral failing, like, I don't bear the brunt of that. But in Israel, the king literally represented the people of Israel to God. And so when the king was faithful to God, the people were blessed. But likewise, when the king 
compromised and sinned, the people would bear the brunt of that judgment because he was literally their representative before God. That'll help us explain what happens in the story a little bit. But here David sins. And it seems to be sinning because he's looking, he's looking to place his trust in human means and not in the God who's proven himself faithful. And this brings us to an interesting and important theological truth, which is that sin doesn't make sense. Fundamentally, sin is irrational. It doesn't make sense. Think about this. Here's David. God has given him astounding military victory. We tend to think that Israel was like a big deal in the ancient Near East. It wasn't. There are records from other nations that were big deals that will mention Israel. They were kind of this like marginal, small little nation, but yet God gives him amazing military victory, and it's clear again and again and again this is God that is with David. Further, God has given him incredible unity and, 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 um, and stability of his throne. It says again and again that all Israel came together to make David king. In our political system, presidents will always say that they have a political mandate when they win. But I'm sorry, a 51% win is not a political mandate. David had a political mandate, 100%. And it's so clear this didn't come about by his own cunning or strength. And so it's like, David, what else does God need to do to demonstrate that you can trust him? Like, I mean, holy moly, David, God has given you so much. Why do you need this extra bit of, of confirmation? It doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't make sense. Let's look at it more broadly. What is sin most fundamentally but rebelling against God? Why would a contingent created, fallible, limited creature rebel against an absolute, necessary, uncontingent, unlimited creator. That's not a war we're going to win. That doesn't make any sense. And then when you think that God is the only source of all that is good, true, and beautiful, like which side do we want to be on? Sin doesn't make sense. It's irrational. At the bank that my dad worked at when I was in high school, there was a really high-level executive who apparently was, was stopping at a roadside fruit stand and stealing fruit. And it was, it was you know, this is rural Pennsylvania. It was a little fruit stand on the side of a farmer's property. It was a kind of an honor system. And so you had the prices there. You'd get your fruit, drop your money in the box, and go. And the farmer found over the course of weeks that someone was stealing fruit from his stand. And he finally got so upset about it that he set up a camera and he caught this high-level executive, bank executive, stealing $10 worth of peaches from his farm. Well, the man was arrested. Of course, he was fired from his job. His life imploded. It makes no sense. The guy's got tons of money. He's got a family. Why? 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 It doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't make sense. And the significance of this is that things that we can understand, we can manage. When I can understand something, I can follow the logical progression of it, I can manage it. And so the fact that sin fundamentally is not rational, it's not, doesn't make sense, what that means is what we need as sinners is not a model to follow, it's not that we need more opportunities or better education, what we need is deliverance. We need salvation. We need someone to rescue us. 
And the Bible is all about one hero who does that. The Bible is all about, we mentioned this last week, the main thing is the coming king who would deliver humanity from sin. There's one hero in the Bible, and it's not David. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we're trying to find, like, how does this speak to us today? And so we'll take someone like David, who's described in some ways in a very positive light, and we say, okay, I want to be like David. And we make him a hero. But here it's showing us, no, David was a sinner like you and I. And more frank, David, a man who raped a woman and then had her husband murdered, was not a hero. The Bible has one hero, and we all need his deliverance. And that's what the Bible's pushing towards. Don't make heroes out of sinners. And this applies, by the way, for other Christians as well. We want to be so careful we don't make heroes out of other sinners. And so we read of someone like Jonathan Edwards, who owned slaves. Like, that's not a minor thing, guys. We read of John Calvin, who had one of his religious opponents burned at the stake for a theological disagreement. Or George Whitfield, who was frankly a terrible husband. These aren't heroes. We can learn from them, and we should. But there's one hero. His name is Jesus Christ. And they all needed deliverance as much as we do. This is the reality of sin. We're not meant to emulate David and all that he does. He's not our hero. But there is one way we do want to emulate him in this passage, and that's how he responds to his sin. Let's look at verses 7 to 13 as we see David respond to sin with repentance. But God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly and that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will. Either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. There are two aspects that are noteworthy and that are worthy of our emulation in this repentance. The first is David's full acceptance for his actions. Again, look at verse 8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly. I have done this thing. David takes full acceptance of his actions. Notice he doesn't try to blame shift. Well, God, look at this position you put me in. I have all these people who are looking at me for leadership, and there are nations that literally want my head on a, on a pike. Of course I'm going to look for more stability and security and strength. You're being unreasonable. God, David doesn't say that. David doesn't try to blame all the other people who were involved in the census. The census of Israel, just like a census in the United States, requires helpers and administrators. You know, blame shifting is the oldest trick in the book, literally the oldest trick in the book. Because when God confronts Adam, what does Adam say? What? It was this woman you gave me. David doesn't blame shift. He takes responsibility. It was I that did this. Second, David doesn't euphemize. 
He doesn't say, well, I messed up, I made a mistake, my bad. He says, I have sinned. I've sinned against God. I've done foolishly. When uh, Mark and I were at Sojourn, we went through their premarital counseling training. And because uh, there was a college couple who wanted us to do their premarital counseling. And Sojourn's a big church. And so it would be impossible for all of those that they're training to actually sit with Robert Chong, who's the pastor of care there, and, and, and sit with them as they would take a couple through premarital counseling. So what they did, which is kind of crazy, but kind of brilliant, is they had a couple who agreed to allow this to be done, but they actually filmed Robert and Karen, his wife, like doing the premarital counseling with this couple, all six sessions, unedited. And there was an agreement that like, you weren't going to go up and like, talk to them some Sunday morning and be like, hey, I saw your video. Like, no, 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 it's just for training purposes. Anyway, so in one of these sessions, the couple confesses, like, hey, we're, yeah, like, we've been sleeping together. We know we shouldn't. We messed up. My bad. And Robert Chong, who's like one of the most gentle men, you know, he's not like an aggressive person. He says, no, you didn't mess up. You sinned. And it's important you say it. And you're like watching the video, you're like, whoa, whoa, this got real serious real fast. We make mistakes in math class. We don't make mistakes with sin. And David doesn't euphemize. He doesn't say I messed up. He says, I sinned against God. It is my fault. I am to blame. True repentance requires full acceptance of our sin. We are the problem, not others. The second aspect that's, that's noteworthy here is then David's unconditional surrender. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. When David comes to God, he doesn't try to bargain. He doesn't say, I'll meet you halfway, or I'll do this. He doesn't say, can I have a fourth option, please? He comes to God with no claims, and he just throws himself on the mercy of God. It is a complete and radical submission. God, you do what is right and I'll accept it. It's an unconditional surrender. This is sometimes the hardest part of repentance because we're afraid of the consequences. There's always relational consequences to sin. Sometimes there's legal consequences. There can be serious consequences, and this can keep us from, from repenting and confessing our sin because we're afraid of what will happen. But repentance is worth it because repentance restores our relationship to God. The Bible is clear. Sin separates us from God. And we repent, it restores our relationship. Now I need to qualify that in that Paul said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when Christians sin, it's not as if our eternal state is all of a sudden in question. But yet, even still, for instance, Peter, when he's talking to married couples in 1 Peter, and he's speaking to the husband, and he says, love your wife well so that your prayers may not be hindered. And the idea is, God will not hear your prayers if you treat your wife badly. There are still impacts of sin, even on a Christian. And it erodes our intimacy with God, and even God's willingness to hear our prayers. Repentance is worth it, no matter the consequence, because repentance restores our relationship to God. 
And here's the thing, that the motivation that's necessary for this kind of radical submission, God, I, you do what's right, I'll accept it. The motivation required for that is that we have to say, I want God more than anything else. It doesn't matter what it's going to cost me. It doesn't matter the consequences. I want God more than anything else. And when, when we repent this way, when, when we acknowledge, we, we fully accept our sin, we radically and, and, and humbly submit ourselves to God, our hope is that God shows mercy. And that's what we see in the text. This brings us to our third point, mercy. Look at verse 15. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Drop, jump down to verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And he turned and he saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for you for full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And looking down at 22 verse 1, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God. And here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. One thing that's not clear, but you have to understand to, to understand what's going on here. Again, God had given David three options, and David chose the one of three days of pestilence. What's not stated explicitly, but has to be assumed to make sense, is that those days have not been completed. The three days are not up. And that's why when the angel of the Lord comes to Jerusalem, he extends his sword to continue the judgment because the three days are not up. And that was the punishment. And yet God stays his hand. He relents from the judgment. And it's at this point of mercy that the temple is built. Because where we meet God is always at the point of mercy. And David was saying the temple, which will be the meeting place of God and people until the king himself comes, is going to be built at the place of mercy, where human sin meets God's mercy and his provision for sin. This is a story is something of a parable for all of us, because we're all like David. We've all sinned. We've all sinned against God. We all come with, with no bargaining chips, no, like, God, I'll do this. I've done this for you. No, we have nothing to say. 
and we come and we cry for mercy. If this is true, why do we struggle to be honest about our sin to each other? And if this is true, that David's story is everyone's story, that all have sinned and fallen short, why, why do we struggle to be honest with one another about our own sin? We struggle to confess it in any kind of authentic or honest way. Think of it like this. It's, it's a little bit like going to the emergency room and then being like, I'm not sick. Like, I'm just, I'm here for the coffee. Ignore the bleeding on my leg. I'm okay. That's what it's like to come to church and say, well, I don't, I'm not a sinner. I don't have anything to confess. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 2, 17. Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When we come to church on Sunday morning, what we are saying is, yeah, we're those sinners. We're the sick who need a doctor. We're the ones who deserve God's judgment, and we're asking for mercy. Will God provide it? So, question. Who, outside your spouse or fiance, if you're married or engaged, who in this church really knows what's going on in your life? Knows your struggles, knows your sin, because you've confessed it to them. And if the answer is nobody, I think we're missing something. There's great freedom in realizing, yeah, we're all sick, we're all sinners, we all approach God in need of mercy. Just like you don't pretend in the emergency room, well, I'm just here for the coffee. No, we're here because we need healing. We're free to be honest with each other because we meet God at the place of mercy, not at the place of our good works, not at the place of our righteousness or our holiness. We meet him at the place of mercy, his provision for our sin. But that mercy is costly. So look at verses 24 to 25 again. When David is bartering for the piece of land with Ornan the Jebusite, and he says to Ornan, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, and offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David paid an exorbitant price. Doesn't make sense to us, but he paid a lot. First, Ornan was like, take it for free, and then David's like, no, I'm going to pay you the full price. And Ornan's like, well, you're the king, so you got a lot of money. It's kind of like when you go to buy a house, and you're like, I'll pay whatever you want, and you drive up in a BMW. Well, yeah, you're, you're going to pay a lot for that house. David pays an exorbitant price, and he's able to deliver Israel from his sin. There was a cost to that mercy of God. And here's the thing. This is all happening on a, on a hill outside of Jerusalem. The temple is eventually built on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Well, a thousand years later, there's gonna come another king, King Jesus, who will also deliver his people Israel, his people from their sin. And it's gonna come at a great cost. David gave sacrifices on this place in the story. And there would be a sacrifice with Jesus as well, but it wouldn't be a bull or a ram or a sheep, it'd be his own life. And God stayed his wrath with David. He relented. He did not pull the full weight of judgment on sin. But a thousand years later, when King Jesus did, God did not relent. And he poured all the judgment that is due our sin on his own son, 
so that we can know forgiveness and new life. So that we are sinners can receive mercy. This is the story of every Christian. Sin, repentance, mercy. We come with no claim to God's mercy, and yet he provides it at the cost to himself. That's always been the story of the Bible from the beginning. That'll be the story until Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we don't come on the basis of our goodness, our common decency, our righteousness. If we're honest with ourselves, Lord, we all have actions and thoughts that we are ashamed of. We all have many areas in which we are so far short of who we ought to be. And we come and we ask for mercy. We ask for your grace. And we know that because your son died for our sin that we can find that. So help us turn to you in true repentance with full recognition of our sin, with unconditional surrender to you, trusting all of ourselves to you, for you are a God who shows mercy. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.